Welcome to Public Health On Call, a new podcast from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Our focus is the novel coronavirus. I'm Josh Sharfstein, a faculty member at Johns Hopkins and also a former secretary of Maryland's Health Department. Our goal with this podcast is to bring evidence and experts to help you understand today's news about the novel coronavirus and what it means for tomorrow. If you have questions, you can email them to publichealthquestion at jhu.edu. That's publichealthquestion at jhu.edu for future podcast episodes. Today, Stephanie Desmond talks to Brian Farley, a professor at the Johns Hopkins School of Nursing, about the shortage of coronavirus testing and its broad impacts, both on individual health and public health. They discuss why the promise that anyone who wants a test could get a test hasn't panned out and what is needed to move forward. Let's listen. Today I'm here with Jason Farley, a professor at the Johns Hopkins School of Nursing and an infectious diseases nurse epidemiologist. My pleasure. Thank you for joining us. I'd like to talk today about testing for COVID and the different reasons there are that we test and how testing is is moving along. I understand that we test, of course, when someone is sick and has symptoms, but there's also public health reasons to be testing a larger group of people. Yes, so when a person becomes ill and suspects that they might have COVID, their first response is to reach out to their primary care provider or to uh, a call center within their local geographic region. It's important that everyone realize that people may be testing differently in their local region because of the availability of testing. So in Maryland, for example, where where Johns Hopkins is based, we are testing people based on the presentation of symptoms. Now, it may be that as testing becomes more widely available, we begin testing people for the virus even when they're asymptomatic, which would help us determine the potential for community transmission and and have a better understanding of how we tell people to to wait that 14-day period in self-quarantine, even if they may not have clinical symptoms of the illness. So I have heard a lot about it being very hard to get a test, and it's very frustrating for people. Is there a system in place? Are we working to get more testing out there? Yeah, first and foremost, we we need for the public to, to recognize that, that there is a multitude of reasons why testing is delayed. You know, it begins with having the right kinds of supplies to do the testing. Everything from the type of swab that we've seen being placed inside people's noses or their, their throats to the, the type of viral culture media, the, the substance that allows the culture to grow so that we can test for it, to the tubes, to the personal protective equipment, to our healthcare workforce, right? And so when we think about testing, it's not as simple as do we have the capability to test yes or no. It's also about the capability and the availability of all of those supplies as part of the, the supply chain. And so what what health systems across the country are facing with is, number one, do we have the test capability, period, and not everyone has that capability? Two, if we do have testing capacity, do we have the right supplies in order to facilitate that testing? And then can we protect our health workforce when we're doing that testing? And then finally, what's the volume the lab can actually process in a given day? And so when we look at that entire chain of testing, we really must think about every single link in that chain because one link is gone and and ultimately the testing process falls apart. If we had been better prepared, I guess, as a nation, would this be going more smoothly? 
I think, you know, preparedness in hindsight is something easy to say. When we think about preparedness for any type of global pandemic, it's always hard to predict, you know, what kinds of media or what kind of samples and, and solutions we will need to address that pandemic. In this particular circumstance, you know, we know that cases were identified by the WHO in the beginning of January in, in terms of their knowledge and being able to test for COVID-19. And then we had a, a fairly large gap between that period of time and when we st stopped travel uh, into the country. So we started to get see cases. In terms of our preparedness from a testing perspective, the diagnostic test was developed in in China in, in a record amount of time. It was very swift and very clear. That then came over to the United States, that sequencing of the virus so that we could replicate that test via PCR, a rapid type of test that breaks up the virus and really tells us the type of DNA it has or RNA in this case that it has. And, and we had that test quite quickly, but unfortunately, the, the test had an error in it, which resulted in significant delays. And so the, the test that was originally produced by the CDC amplified the, a different part of the viral genome and so apps was providing inaccurate results. And that's why we've had to see the entire country kind of self-grow their own tests, self-develop their own tests. And so at Johns Hopkins, for example, we've been now testing for approximately four weeks, and that was a homegrown test that we developed within our system, and we're now sharing that testing and the development of that test with our other sister hospitals in our network so that we can stand up testing better for this entire state. Do you see any time in the near future, do you see it, uh, testing being available to anybody who needs it, who wants it? That's a really important question, and it's really critical that we differentiate here the testing for the virus itself compared to the testing for the recovery of the virus. In other words, testing for antibodies to suggest that someone might have some level of immunity and have recovered from the illness. So putting the antibody test aside for a second and talk about testing for the virus. Right now, as I was mentioning before, it would be ideal if we could test everyone regardless of symptoms. Unfortunately, that's not where we are in terms of laboratory capacity from the things I was mentioning before. But as we grow that laboratory capacity, it would be quite helpful to understand the, the overall, what we would call penetrance into the community, how many people actually have virus that can be transmitting within the community, and what stage of of illness burden are we really in? Are we, are we still seeing those peaks that are being described all over television? Are we somehow bending that curve to uh, slow the number of new infections through social distancing and the like? I think people would probably feel better knowing um, if they uh, were immune, I think that it would help them help us all get back to work faster, wouldn't it? Yeah, certainly. You know, when we are listening to Dr. Fauci and, and Dr. Burks provide guidance here. Obviously, yesterday's estimate of the total number of potential, not only cases, but also the mortality associated with the infection in the United States was sobering. One of the things that being able to offer antibody testing for people and serology, meaning, you know, have you recovered from the illness would offer us is a tiered based approach to returning into the workforce. In addition, it would offer us some level of comfort, although it is based on 
that level of comfort is based on what we know about viruses in general and about our antibody responses in terms of their ability to provide protection more specifically. And yet, we don't yet know the level and duration of those antibodies. So if we develop protective antibodies and how long those antibodies might last with this particular infection is still under review. Are some states doing better than others with their testing? Uh, no doubt. You know, the capacity of each individual state, because we have not federalized our response, has really been called to task. Each state has been, and the health system within that state has really been required to step up and respond to the epidemic and provide the resources needed for testing in that local and, and regional setting. What that's done is it's resulted in, in health systems who are able to stand that testing up faster than others, even within a general geographic region or a state or city. And we are clearly seeing differences. Uh, even in our home city of Baltimore, we have differences in who's up and running with testing and who's not. And, you know, one of the concerns that we all have is, you know, will that create a disparity in who gets tested and how quickly they're diagnosed because they're symptomatic? And then hopefully anyone who is listening to this and, and knows that they have significant symptoms that are, you know, they feel are warranted to either call a helpline or to present to an emergency department that they do so. We have seen rapid progression of the illness from, you know, fevers and cough to, you know, quickly progressing to shortness of breath and difficulty just in practicing your normal daily activities. And so in that circumstance, if someone becomes, has difficulty, even if they've not been tested and, and begins to have difficulty with shortness of breath or, or really just uh, a general sense of, of extreme fatigue coupled with high fevers, really be seeking medical advice at that point. I wanted to switch gears a little bit about, um, you, talk, you, you touched on this earlier, the personal protective equipment. Um, and we've been hearing a lot about how it's not, uh, how there are shortages, how it's not really widely available. Now we're hearing that maybe all of us should be wearing masks every time we go out. Talk to me about sort of the wisdom of that at this point and the shortages. Sure. So it's really clear when Dr. Fauci was mentioning that his support potentially for everyone going out into public wearing a cloth mask that exactly what that means okay so let's let's think about what that is it's a cloth mask helps to reduce the amount of virus that is being released through cough sneeze talking or other means that might cause those little droplets from coming out of our mouth or nose into the environment right so first and foremost reducing environmental exposure onto things that could transmit the virus to other people, but also direct contact. Well, right now, the only people we should be having direct contact with in general are people that are within our household. Everyone else should hopefully be with six feet or two meters away from us. So I, I think it's really critical to know that what we're, what we're proposing with this is this abundance of caution to help prevent environmental contamination we have seen, and it does work, that putting a patient in a paper mask in tuberculosis reduces infectivity for others around the patient with TB up to 50%. And that's a bacterial infection, right? An airborne bacterial infection. So we have good data that simply by reducing what's released in that cough or sneeze reduces potential airborne transmission of a bacteria. It stands to reason that the, that also would work for viral particles and droplets as well. 
And so the recommendation is, is based on some sound scientific evidence. The issue with the pause in doing so are twofold. First and foremost is unlike many cultures of the world in the United States, that has not been a traditional practice for people to go around wearing, even for, for environmental reasons or, or allergy and asthma reasons, people don't typically walk around wearing a mask of any kind, uh, cloth or otherwise. And furthermore, you know, we have been concerned about people wearing it being perceived as if they're ill and therefore that resulting in potential stigma and discrimination and potential acts of violence against those individuals. Now that it's moving more widespread and the potential for moving that, that everyone wearing a cloth mask as a socially acceptable, you know, potentially even recommended activity, we're hopeful that those behaviors by some members of our, of our country would be uh, eliminated, uh, if not significantly reduced. So uh, even if I'm not sick, it makes sense for me to tie a bandana around my nose and mouth if I go to the grocery store. So whether or not a person opts in to do this is a personal choice, right? The reason why persons without symptoms might choose to do this, and again, I, you know, I'm, I lean more being in favor of doing it than not it is again twofold. We are, we do know there is asymptomatic transmission, meaning before you have a fever or cough or anything other than that, you can begin to transmit the virus, and that principally would be transmitted given that you're not coughing or other things through basics of talking, through touching your mucous membranes, your nose, your mouth, uh, and then touching other surfaces, and so. One of the things that wearing the cloth mask, and I'm being very specific to say cloth, do not go out and buy N95s or other healthcare worker needed masks. You mentioned bandanas. Okay, that's fine. But it also helps us to remember not to touch our mucous membranes, not to scratch our nose, not to you know, rub your mouth, put your fingers in your mouth, to sort of stay away. So that will help with environmental contamination. But also when we touch objects, when we have to go to the grocery store and we have to go to the pharmacy and those kinds of things, again, not to expose ourselves by having that barrier there as well. We're really having to sort of change how we do things, aren't we? Yeah, certainly. It's, it's a burden on us all and, and really thinking about just our normal, you know, the way we interact with the world is changing it's also changing in the way in which patients interact with the healthcare system. And I would just encourage everyone to, to find a, a way of staying connected, whether that's through uh, social media, whether that's through you know online uh, happy hours or online socials or online um, support groups. Uh, there are a variety of ways of feeling like you're connected with others. And, and I think it, it helps to also you know walk outside, get some fresh air, uh, again, socially distancing from others, but, um, but to try to make sure that we're, we're maintaining as well our mental health during this entire process. Well, Jason Farley, thank you so much for joining me. It's my pleasure. Thank you for listening to Public Health on Call, a new podcast from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Please send questions to be covered in future podcasts to publichealthquestion at jhu.edu. This podcast is produced by Josh Sharfstein, Lindsay Smith-Rogers, and Lamare Morales. Audio production by Niall Owen-McCusker and Spencer Greer, with support from Chip Hickey. Distribution by Nick Moran. Thank you for listening.